thanks for having me. It's good to be with you all. Before we look at Luke 15, uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray before we look at it. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would bear much good fruit in us as individuals and as a body, uh, to the advancement of your kingdom, to the glory of your son's name. We ask that your spirit would meet us now. Um, give us soft hearts and open ears, and that it certainly includes me, but to all of us to sit under your text, to sit under your word. Would you rebuke us where appropriate, cause us to repent where needed, but also encourage us and edify us in the faith and our walk with you, that um, all the more we would be continued to be molded into your image. And then indeed you would be pleased to bless our time together, draw the lost to yourself, indeed bring glory to your name. I ask the words in my mouth, the meditation of my heart, to be acceptable in your sight. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Have you ever been impressed by something you were a part of? Like impressed by something you got to contribute to? Now that sounds like a very arrogant way to start a sermon. I know that sounds really bad. Let me explain what I mean. And when I was a kid, I visited the Memphis Zoo well, with my family and my three sisters and my parents. And as I walked in the Memphis Zoo, my dad let it be known that he actually worked on that particular zoo. He helped build it. He had a summer job with one of my uncles in Memphis. He said, yeah, actually, that building right there I got to work on for one summer. Just got to swing a hammer and a nail. thought, oh, that's really cool. You could almost sense... Um, his sense of pride. My dad is not a very handy man. He's not very engineering savvy, but like he was a part of something much bigger. When you saw the completed product, you thought, wow, um, that is pretty neat. You could tell he had that sense about him. I had a similar moment in my own life. Um, I cut meat for a number of years. I was a butcher in the Kroger grocery stores, a little Italian butcher shop in Orlando, Florida as well. And a part of my time was in Kroger was in Nashville. And all of a sudden, on this particular store in Nashville, we got voted for some reason that we were going to be part of this massive remodel project. Kroger was going to try to roll out some fancier, higher-end stores to see what they could do, play with a few stores, see how it looked. And all of a sudden, over the course of that year, one of my years there, I was helping manage that department. I was an actual meat cutter at the time. I got to be a part of a really ambitious remodel job engineers, construction guys come in, they change things, every department is on their A-game, and all of a sudden, the re-grand reopening happens. And all of a sudden, the president, vice president, CEO, some pretty powerful people are walking through our store, taking note and nodding, like, well done, y'all did a really good job. That felt really good. Now, granted, my contribution was small. Uh, I helped set the meat case, helped organize the cooler, get some things in order at the end of this year. So again, small contribution but got noticed by some pretty big, important people. Now, maybe you notice, but in our text, these two parables in Luke 15, you have something sort of small happening on the earth. You have what Jesus says, when a sinner uh, sinner repents, when one sinner repents, notice who notices. That the heavenly realm, angels, God, the heavenlies, not only do they notice, but they joyfully rejoice, that they celebrate this act. This is a really big deal. When we say something happens on earth, this simple mundane act of a sinner repenting all of a sudden gets noticed in the heavenlies. And again, they don't just take note, they really like it. God and his throne room and his angels, they all like what they see. 
That's a really important theme. Whenever we have something happening on earth, and the heavens mentioned as well, that's an important theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. Like, for example, this tabernacle, when God gives the instructions, he's going to say, that is where I will meet you and dwell in your midst to the nation of Israel. Say, as you're making your way through this tabernacle, heaven will break forth and my presence will reside among me and my people, right? So heaven and earth, the kind of joining of such, that's a really big deal throughout the scriptures. Some of you might be familiar with the Bible Project, those videos online. They actually have one on heaven and earth, and it's really good. A five-minute video that shows you how big this theme is, the joining of heaven and earth throughout the entire scriptures. So hold that thought, okay? That's where we're going to land this plane. At the end of the sermon, we're going to come back to that really important point. What does it mean to say something small happens on the earth, and heaven takes note and rejoices? What all is Jesus getting at? So for us to do that, okay, this is really ambitious, and I'm really sorry. I haven't listened to Hutch's sermons. Um, I know what y'all are talking about. Y'all are in the Gospel of Luke. We're, we're talking about the theme of discipleship. All those things are still true. So what I'm about to do, I feel like, is really helpful for context for these particular parables. I'm going to try to summarize the whole Bible in like three or four minutes and then zoom in closer to Luke and see what's going on. So if Luke, I mean, if a Hutch does this a lot, forgive me if he did this when y'all started Luke, I'm sorry, but this is always something I think we should have in our grasp. What is the story of the scriptures? When we get to something like this, it actually makes more sense and we feel the weight of it more. Y'all with me? Okay, so what is the story of the Bible, broadly speaking? Okay, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates this beautiful creation, the earth, and he puts these unique creatures, human beings, in this wonderful garden, temple-like sanctuary, the Garden of Eden, and he blesses Adam and Eve to do some very specific things. He wants them to rule and reign over the earth. He wants them to be like God, like many kings like reflect his image to have dominion rule over the animals in the creation. And he wants more of these unique creatures. He wants people to participate in filling the entire earth to be fruitful and multiply the world over. So in short, God sets out at creation to have an earth filled with people that know him and love him, reflect his goodness and beauty, and join him in his mission. The fancy way to say this is that people are the object and the instrument of God's unique blessing and mission. They're created for that very purpose, that I will bless you to be a blessing the world over, right? That's how the story starts. It goes really bad really quickly. Adam and Eve rebel. We don't need God's instruction. Here we go. Death, sin, and brokenness. Relationships fractured between the self, God, others, and creation. Everything's gone awry. But yet God does not abandon his mission. Through every covenant that gets made, he says, I will continue this particular mission. Noah, you and your household, I will save and redeem and repopulate the earth through you. Abraham, here's my name, here's my covenant sign. I will bless you to what? To be a blessing to all the families of the earth. He takes a people to himself and will continue to use that people to be the object and instrument of his blessing the world over. This is what we believe the church to be. The church is now Israel reformed. Israel is not a strip of land, biblically understood. It is the church reformed on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, believing in him with God's spirit. And what does Jesus tell these people? Go out and get the nations. All authority where? On heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
go out and get the entire world, get the nations. And if you read the last two chapters in the Bible, what do you find? God gets exactly what he set out to do. A new heavens, a new earth, filled with people of every tongue, tribe, and nation that know him and love him and reflect his beauty and goodness, right? God gets what he set out to accomplish. That is the biblical story. So again, when we see heaven rejoicing at something that's happening on the earth, our ears should really perk up. This is a really big deal. These parables are short, but Jesus is saying something very profound and what he's getting at. What does actually Jesus want from us? So y'all got it? That's the story of the scriptures. We should know that story. And this is what we are involved in. Embodied people that know and love the true and living God and are in the business of getting more people to know and love him. Okay? Now, the whole story hinges on the person of Jesus. God in the flesh. God's very son come to earth. Remember where we started that people were created to reflect God's image. People really messed that up on their own. So when God sends his son, God in the flesh, if you want to say, well, gosh, what does it mean to be truly and fully human? You don't do better than looking at the person of Jesus. The book of Hebrews describes the exact imprint of God's nature. So as we look at the person of Jesus... Say, as we, I saw it on your screen, to be an apprentice. That's a wonderful goal that y'all are doing, to go through the book of Luke and to look at the person of Jesus, God in the flesh, showing us what it means to be truly and fully human, to walk in his ways, to align our purposes with his, to speak as he speaks, and to like really align our entire being with God in the flesh. That is a wonderful goal. That is one of the purposes that Luke even writes his gospel, to know who this person of Jesus is, what he's up to, and how we should respond to him. So now, I think it's fair to really focus in and look at these 10 verses in Luke. Everybody with me? That's still good? Okay. So if your Bible is open, then it will help you. I am sorry I picked the wrong translation. ESV is standard where we roll. Y'all are NIV people. I love the NIV. I'm sorry. But... um. If you have your Bibles open, it will help you. But again, just have those two parables in your mind. So what is Jesus getting at as we consider these two parables? And heaven rejoicing at a simple, mundane act on the earth from a sinner repenting. What is going on here? To really take it all in, let's consider the context of Luke, right? We got some characters mentioned. Now, who's coming to hear Jesus We have tax collectors and sinners. These are not popular people. That's that's actually an understatement. These would have been people, especially the tax collectors, loathed in Jesus' time. If you think the IRS and paying taxes, we make fun of people that work for the IRS, a good friend of mine actually does. If you think that's kind of bad now, it was much worse in Jesus' day. Sometimes tax collectors in Jesus' day, they actually got their jobs because they were the highest bidder. Can you imagine someone showing up to your door with the backing of the Roman authority government behind them saying, I need to get some taxes paid from you, and you know he got that job because he paid a lot to get it. So he's got a lot of money to make up. He's got to pay back the Roman government to get that job, and then he wants to make a profit for himself. That was a job that was ripe for corruption. People did not like. This is like some of the worst of the worst of people. That's who Jesus is hanging out with. And then notice sinners. Just broadly speaking, who does Luke referring to when he says sinners? That is a broad term. 
but I think Luke is using it, these are basically people that have no hope of help. That according to the Old Testament laws, they probably couldn't afford sacrifices. They have no idea what the law actually says. They're kind of outside the scope of what someone would deem as any ability to get righteous on their own. So those two camps, broadly speaking, sinners and tax collectors, those are who Jesus is not just hanging out with, but notice, he's receiving and welcoming and eating with. You can make a side note point right here. If we're tempted to rule anyone outside of Jesus' help and hospitality, I think this text would force us to say you probably shouldn't do that. That no one is outside the potential grasp and help of Jesus. That his arm is not too short to grab anyone. So there's anyone that we're tempted to write off, not them. They are outside the scope of help. I would say just consider who Jesus is actually drawing to himself, even in this text. Now, who doesn't notice, I mean, who does notice but doesn't like what Jesus is doing? The Pharisees and scribes, right? These are the teachers of the Bibles, which would have been their Old Testament. These two camps really knew their scriptures. They don't like what Jesus is doing and who he's hanging out with and being nice to and receiving and welcoming and eating with. Whenever the Pharisees and scribes show up in the Gospel of Luke, it never goes well. They are constantly against Jesus and what he's up to. They grumble. They don't like it. And Jesus turns to the Pharisees and scribes. I think that's his initial audience. He's talking to them with these parables, but I do think it's realistic to say other people are hearing it as well. So what is he getting at? We're looking at two of his three parables. What is he trying to tell the Pharisees and scribes out of these two parables? Let's consider. Jesus, you notice in verse 4, he appeals to common sense and human experience, right? Which one of you, what man of you, which one of you wouldn't do this? Like, you know how this would go. And as you consider the sheep, we'll look at the first one first, uh, this parable of the lost sheep. It, it does appear impractical, right? Like, isn't it risky to leave the 99 in the open country to go find the one? Like, might you lose even more? And, and real, I mean, numbers-wise, it's 1%. What is 1 out of 100? But thinking about the economics of it, the money-wise, or the impractical uh, nature of it, I don't think that's really the point. Those are kind of fun questions to entertain. But Jesus tells you what the point is. That when a shepherd whose livelihood is seen overseeing sheep, even when he finds 1 out of 100, that was lost and brings them back, that is a joyful reason to celebrate. That reunion, that reuniting, that's worth celebrating. And people do that. They're saying, even though it's 1% of my entire flock, this is really good news. I'm going to call up my friends and say, hey, I found 1%. That's worth celebrating. As maybe a little backstory, if you want something to read this afternoon, Ezekiel 34 is a fascinating chapter. We're not going to turn there. If you read Ezekiel 34, it's this fascinating prophecy where the Lord is looking over Israel and he is disgusted by the shepherds of his people. He says things like, you've been fleecing the sheep for your own benefit. You've taken advantage of them. You haven't done anything for them. And in that chapter, God says, the day will come where I myself will shepherd my sheep. I myself will bind up the brokenhearted and the lost and bring them back. I myself, me, me, me. I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is embodying that uh, hope 
and he is fulfilling that prophecy. That's again, side note, Ezekiel 34, point out some fun, but uh, the Pharisees and scribes would have been guilty of such a thing. They have not taken good care of the sheep and trusted to them. But that reuniting of the 1% is worth celebrating. More joy in heaven happens over one sinner that repents. That's what happens. Let's look at the second one, the lost coin. It's not insignificant that Jesus uses a woman uh, as an example in this parable. He actually does that a lot in Luke. He'll use men or men and then a woman or women kind of back-to-back in his parables. I think letting the, the reader know who can be a disciple of Jesus, anyone. This is for everyone is fair game uh, to join Jesus in his mission and his kingdom work. But notice how the stakes are slightly raised now. Where it was 1% of a sheep, what is it now? 10% of a woman's income. That would have been a really big deal. If you have 10 silver coins, um, that's a lot of livelihood. You lose 10% of that, that's a big deal. And notice how, um, uh, what's the word here? Notice how serious she is at finding the coin. She lights the lamp. She sweeps. It's been very easy for a coin to kind of get meshed into a mud or dirt floor there. She wants to sweep and seeks until she finds. And again, what's the point? You say, well, if she's calling up her friends and celebrating, is she going to spend more than she just found? Not the point. Fun question, interesting. Again, that's not the point. The point is that reuniting of what was lost to the one looking for it, that is worth celebrating. And the woman would rightly celebrate. I found 10% of my income. That's a big deal to me. Heavenly joy from one sinner repenting is much more than that joyful reunion, right? That's what Jesus wants them to hear. I think those are fairly straightforward when we let Jesus uh, interpret his own statement. And now I think the question is begged, so what, right? What does that mean for us now? So what? I think there's a weird tension when I read these texts, right? And do y'all, do y'all hear this? In the parables, it almost feels like Jesus is painting the shepherd or the woman like God. Like he's, he's sort of, uh, those are pictures of, of God seeking sinners and seeking the lost. Again, Ezekiel 34, I myself am going to come and I'm going to seek the lost. I'm going to find them, right? But then Jesus gives credit to the sinner that turns, right? That's weird. Do y'all feel that tension? Like, the sinner is the one that turns and repents, turns from his way of being, his idols and shallow way of living, turning toward Jesus, to God, to this way of the kingdom. In that turning, Jesus says when that sinner does that, that's what we're celebrating. Or the, that, that's the picture here. Jesus doesn't resolve that tension. I think if we read that carefully, like, both are almost present. I don't really care to resolve it either. But the reality is God delights the heavens birth force, burst forth into praise when a sinner repents. And in so doing, a glorious reunion is happening. What was lost has been found by a shepherd seeking, by a woman seeking, or her coin, that every single person has fair game to turn and to repent, to become Jesus' disciple, to join his kingdom mission, to learn this new way of being, and that's exactly what Jesus is after. That is why he's eating and receiving tax collectors and sinners at the beginning. He's not simply hanging out with them for hanging out's sake, which is an okay thing to do, by the way. Spending time with someone, is, that's fine. But if Jesus is sitting with a corrupt tax collector 
who's using his position of power and authority to take advantage of people, he wants that to stop, right? But he's eating and uh, being with them because he wants them to repent of that way of being, to be actually faithful in their task, to be just in so doing. He is after people actually repenting and joining his lead. So in closing, here I think two big things to take from you. I think Jesus is giving us, as we think about discipleship, of following Jesus, of being an apprentice, of following his ways, aligning our purposes with his, here are the two things that jump off the page from these parables as I see it. And for 2,000 years, disciples of Jesus have held these two things very dear to them. Those two would be, and they are mundane, they are boring, but I think they have a lot of potent effect as hospitality and repentance as a way of life. The hospitality that Jesus is showing at the beginning, this is something the gift is given to the church and every believer everywhere, to have the ability to open up your home and to give of your substance and to welcome other people in. We can certainly imitate Jesus there. That is a wonderful way to be his disciple, to be hospitable. And I think maybe we should imitate Jesus especially here. Are there any people in your mind that might be like the tax collectors and sinners to Luke, the writer? That you were really quick to write off. They are outside the scope of God's help, right? Maybe we should start there or start with them to seek those out and to welcome them into our homes. Or better yet, we should ask ourselves, are we doing anything that might actually draw them in? and feel welcome among us, worth asking ourselves. Because we consider ourselves to be disciples of Jesus and his ways. Jesus is receiving and welcoming those that the earth did not take too kindly to. That is worth imitating. Now, even as we show hospitality, as we do that, that's not an end in and of itself. Again, it's a wonderful thing to do. But we have a good story to tell and we have good news. We have something to say, look, the true king has come. God has made himself known. Any type of idol or selfish or empty way of being, you can follow Jesus. You can learn from him. You can learn his way of being and actually be filled. That is really good news. We can tell that to anyone that might listen. I hope we do both those two things. These are wonderful things the church can do as disciples of Jesus. To be hospitable to even those who might not want to, the world looks down on. And as we do, actually tell the good news that a turning can be had. And when they turn, what do they find? They find a joyful father willing to receive them. That is true for everyone. And that is the main point of the prodigal son which is the next parable. That shepherd that rejoices, one out of a hundred. The woman that rejoices, one out of ten. The father, the prodigal son story that rejoices, one out of two comes back. He is so delighted, running to welcome him back. So like, what kind of God are we introducing our people to? One that loves to receive those that turn and look to him. Loves to embrace them. That is hard to believe, but that is what Jesus is showing those that will listen. That's really good news. Would God give us help, me help, all of us, 
to be hospitable, to be repentant are lifelong, right? To be marked by repentance, to welcome others into this glorious way of the repentant life and following King Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Luke and his artistry and how um, and all that he reveals, all that you reveal through him. Uh, we do ask that you would be pleased uh, to bless these things, that we would be a hospitable people, that you would help us to open up our homes more and more to our neighbors, to our enemies, to our co-workers, to those you put in our path, to especially those that the world might deem outside your scope of help, that we would seek those out, we would imitate Jesus even there, as we love our neighbors, our enemies, those in our path, as we welcome them into our home, let us tell them the good news that there is a God that is willing to embrace them and to burst out in heavenly joy by simply to feel their need of him and to ask for it. They will be received. That is wonderful news. Let us embrace it in his fullness and be such a people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I do love the fact that um, at this church, y'all's pattern, we actually get a chance to do these two things here, the way y'all do things, we get a chance to confess our sins. Like That's the pattern of repentance, right? We repent our whole life long. We keep turning from things that we know are out of accord. So we get to confess our sins together. And then we get to be welcomed to his table where Jesus shows us hospitality. He gives of himself, like, come and eat with me, feast on my body and blood. That is really good news. So I love how well that actually works, these parables. We get to repent, to say this together, and then we get to be welcomed into his hospitality. It's really good news. But let's, um, let's say this prayer together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been, help us change what we are, and direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Let's take a few moments and silently confess our sins to God. Amen. Um, Grace Community Trenton, there is good news for you, for all those visiting, for all those that believe on the Lord Jesus. I know y'all things do a little differently here for communion, so me and uh, we've talked about it, but if I mess up the order, please forgive me. We will get through this. Um, The reality is that Jesus does offer continual hospitality to his church until he returns. That is the form of communion. Another thing the church has done for 2,000 years to consistently remember him by, but I do think it is more than simple remembrance. These things that actually nourish us and build us up in the faith, giving us visible words, tangible grace, so we taste and see indeed that the Lord is good, that his hospitality is wonderful. But this meal, this little foretaste of the great wedding feast to come, it is for those that have bent the knee to the Lord Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures. So if that is true of you, And by all means, you are welcome to come um, and eat and drink. 
Um, if that's not true of you, it'd be best that you not partake of that, but anybody is welcome to come and receive prayer. If that's not true of you, if you're not convinced who Jesus is as he's revealed in the scriptures, if you've not put your faith in him, we really are glad you're here. This is a great place to be. I would love to talk to you about that further. Many people here would, about what does it mean to turn, to put your faith in Jesus and to follow his ways. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the very night he was betrayed, he took bread. I should be walking back now. See, I get my cue. He took bread when he had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples. He blessed it. He said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for many the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's really good news. Now, can I pray one more time to bless, and then I'll call the musicians up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would be pleased to bless our eating and our drinking. Build us up in the faith. Help us to, um, would you help our unbelief? Help us to believe more deeply that indeed you have died for us, you have paid for our sins, and you call us even now to walk in newness of life by the help of your very spirit. We thank you for your hospitality to us. We thank you that you do indeed receive us at a simple turning to you, that you welcome us in, the heavens rejoice. Help us believe these things, build up your people even now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.